0: Let me tell you a story. Podcast number twenty.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me it Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago. Was the age of never mind. It is a truth
2: universally acknowledged. You, you don't know about show. me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story, with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve.
1: Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Our featured fiction author's book, Five Brides, just happens to debut this month, which just happens to be June. So we're going with a wedding slash marriage theme. Steve will start us off with quotations about love and marriage.
0: Clint Eastwood said, there's only one way to have happy marriage and as soon as I learn what it is, I'll get married again. <laughs> he also said, they say marriages are made in heaven, but so is thunder and lightning. Sidney Smith, marriage resembles a pair of shears so joined that they cannot be separated, often moving in opposite directions, yet always punishing anyone who comes in between. Doug Larson, More marriages might survive if the partners realized that sometimes the better comes after the worse. Dave Muir said, a great marriage is not when the perfect couple comes together. It is when an imperfect couple learns to enjoy their differences. Often the difference between a a successful marriage and a mediocre one consists of leaving three or four things a day unsaid by Harlan Miller. An unknown, anonymous, or too cowardly to put his name on here. <laughs> if it weren't for marriage, men and women would have to fight with total strangers.
1: My sweet Aunt Hazel blessed our family by writing my grandparents' history. Here's the story of their 1910 Oklahoma Wedding. Marietta stood by the window and looked toward the road by the house. This was a very special day for her. It was her wedding day, October 20th, 1910. She had been ready for some time, anxious for Ralph to come and not wanting to be late. She was dressed in a long brown skirt, gathered at the waist, her pink blouse with long sleeves and a high collar she had made herself with the help of Aunt Mary Goble, Mary's long, thick brown hair was piled high on her head, up and back, and rolled over a rat, as it was called. These were made from a piece of cloth, fashioned into a long roll, then stuffed and fitted around the face, with the hair combed back over it. All her girlfriends wore their hair this way, high and stylish. Mary looked back at the room. She had made it as neat as possible, Her father's house had only two rooms and one was built of sod. She and Ralph would be coming back here to live after the ceremony, here with her father and her brother, Lester. Yes, he was coming. She could see the familiar team of horses in the buggy. As it drew nearer, she could see Ralph dressed in a suit and hat. She waited in the doorway for him to drive into the yard. It was about 10 miles to Alva, Oklahoma, but the horses were fresh, the buggy light, and the October day was bright and beautiful. They soon reached Alva and Ralph was hitching the team in front of the courthouse. They were married at the office of the Justice of the Peace, Frank McGarry, and were soon on their way back to the farm. Ralph farmed with both his and Mary's father for a while after they were married. This was beneficial because the families were close neighbors and could all be together. But after the first sons were born to Ralph and Mary, Leonard Leon in 1911 and Frank Edgar in 1913, Ralph began to long for a home on land he could call his own. He heard about land in Wyoming offered as homesteads and left in 1913 with friends to see for himself. He read the laws as to what was required. He must build a dwelling place, break land, and sow 40 acres and also live on the land. Three years were allowed to accomplish this. Ralph chose an area of 320 acres, 15 miles southeast of Wheatland, Wyoming, in an area known as Hudson Valley. Mary, Leonard, and Frank soon came to Wyoming, too. Of course, Ralph had not had time to build a house, but had made arrangements to live with a cousin, who was homesteading six miles to the north. They traveled to Wheatland by train. Mary's first impressions were, How lonely! And, Oh, this terrible wind that seems to blow continually. Only five houses could be seen on the way from Wheatland to the homestead site. As it turned out, living with the cousins didn't work out very well, so after staying for a short time, Mary and the boys returned to Oklahoma. In a few months, Ralph sent for his family again and met them at the depot with a team and lumber wagon. After a long, tiresome train ride, they still had a slow, bumpy 15 miles to cover. Ralph had been busy while Mary was away. He had built a 12-by-14-foot sod house. It was a dugout type, built into the side of a small hill. Most of it was underground, with about three feet of wall above. The soddy had three windows, one each in the east and west sides, and one in the door on the south. The walls were plastered inside, and the floor was of wide boards. It was a warm, cozy home. Before Mary arrived, Ralph had bought a cook stove from a neighbor. The door hinges were broken, but it worked fine so so long as they could keep the door propped with a stick of wood. Ralph also made a table and two benches, and cupboards for the dishes and food supplies. They had one double bed and a trundle bed for the boys. Mary used the trunk for their clothes and linens, since they had no closets. Later on, a friend from Oklahoma, who was also moving to Wyoming, offered to help them. He had engaged an immigrant car for shipping his belongings and made room for Mary's sewing machine, a team of horses, and a plow. By now, Ralph was seeing the fulfillment of his dreams. Land of his own, his own home, Mary and the boys with him. Mary would look out over those vast reaches of loneliness and say, Ralph, what do you see in all this? Why do you want to live in such a place? But he saw more than the wind-swept acres of buffalo grass. He saw a future and independence. Mary would stay in Wyoming until she felt she couldn't stand it another day. Then with the help of their parents, he would purchase a train ticket, help her pack, and she and the boys would go home to Oklahoma for a visit. Ralph's mother would say, Just stay here, Mary. When he sees you aren't coming back, he'll give up on that dream of his and come back too. But Ralph just couldn't leave the homestead, and eventually Mary would return to try again. After a third trip and more children arrived, it was more difficult to travel. Mary found it easier to stay and cope as best she could. 39 years later, in 1949, our Wyoming friends June and Vic Krusick were married in Montana. This is June's account of the early days of their courtship and marriage. My family was living on a farm 23 miles east of Billings, Montana, when I met the man who was to become my husband. Oh, he was so handsome. He would almost take your breath away, especially if you were a teenage girl, and he was tall, slim, and blue-eyed with blonde, wavy hair, and such a shy, cute smile and beautiful teeth. I don't remember when I began to go steady with Vic, but I do know I was working in Huntley, Montana when he came to see me one night. We drove a short way out of town and parked on a side road, where he asked if I needed a ring to become engaged. I said, no, it was the promise that counted. One day Vic came into the café where I was working. I became so flustered I mixed up the orders. The customers just laughed at me and said it was all right. They knew I was nervous because Vic was there. He was so cute. Vic and I were married in a parsonage on a Sunday afternoon in Billings on June 19, 1949. Mother, Daddy, and Clara were there. My sister, Erin, and her husband stood up with us. We didn't have a wedding cake, which still makes me sad. After a lunch, we left on a week-long honeymoon. We went to the Yellowstone Park via Red Lodge, Lewis, and Clark Caverns, Virginia City, and many places in the park. It was a memorable honeymoon. The scenery was beautiful. But of course, we were seeing it all through rose-colored glasses. We came back home to where Vic was living and farming with his parents. When you are in love, I guess you will do anything to be together. I've always said the reason I married so young was because another girl had her eyes on Vic and I didn't want her to get him. We lived with his parents for five years. They were both Czechoslovakian and very decent, clean, honest, hard-working people. But living with them was not easy for an immature 16-year-old girl. Having been raised in a large, close-knit family and having learned to do my share of the work and more if necessary, I could pretty well do anything, I thought. But I had learned to do things my mother's way. And Mrs. Krusick had her way of doing things. In fact, her way was the only right way. Believe it or not, we all got along pretty well together. Our garden was so big, we irrigated it with ditch water, boots, and shovels. We canned hundreds of jars of fruit, vegetables, pickles, jams, and jellies. Vic's mother made a big crock of sauerkraut and one of pickles, and then put the sauerkraut into jars. We had five apple trees, so many so that many of the apples wound up in jars as sauce, apple butter, and pickled apples. Mr. Kruzik raised geese. In the winter... When everything else was done, we sat at the kitchen table with sacks of goose feathers and stripped the soft feathery part off the center stem. Mrs. Kruzik then had the feathers made into mattresses, quilts, and pillows. Such luxury. And so soft and warm on cold Montana nights.
0: Staying in the mid-1900s, I'll be reading Chapter 3 from Five Brides by Eva Marie Everson. Portal, Georgia, 1952. Night had settled around the old farmhouse in quaking shadows, pungent with the scent of burning autumn leaves. Evelyn Alexander, more used to her quiet surroundings than she wanted to be, stood at the open kitchen window, drying the last of the pots and pans from supper. She returned them from the lower cabinet where they belonged and whisked the dish rag over the white formica countertop. She pressed her hands against the small of her back and stretched, then jumped when her mother spoke behind her. Don't forget to close the window. Evelyn spun around. Her mother had already dressed for bed. Her hair had been set in pin curls and the scent of talcum powder drifted across the room. Yes, ma'am, Evelyn said. I won't. Her mother turned away, shoulders slumped against the weariness of life. Mama? Mama stopped, turned back. What? Where's Daddy? Out yonder, on the front porch, I expect. That man loves the smell of those leaves more than anyone I know. She shook her head for a moment. Evelyn thought she saw her mother smile, but before she could know for sure, her mother shuffled down the hall. Don't forget the window. "'I won't,' Evelyn muttered. "'She returned to the sink and leaned over, "'pushed the raised window toward the sill, "'then pulled the curtains shut. "'A minute later, she stepped over her younger brother, Saul, "'who lay on the living room rug, "'reading another Hardy Boys mystery. "'It's about time for bed,' she said to him. "'I'm almost done with this chapter,' "'he answered without looking away from the book. "'Evelyn smiled at him At the red in his cropped hair and the way he'd managed to kick off only one shoe while the other stayed secure on his foot, she walked out onto the front porch where, sure enough, she found her daddy sitting in one of the rockers, pipe stem clutched between his teeth, the scent of it mixed with that of the leaves, and Evelyn inhaled deeply. Hey, sugar dumpling, he said without turning his head. Evelyn walked past him to the nearby swing, hanging by two half-rusty chains. Hey daddy. She pulled a postcard out of one of the side pockets of her skirt as she pushed her saddle oxfords against the narrow gray painted boards making the sw- the swing squeak. She made an effort to read the words on the back but without the porch light on and with no moon to speak of her endeavor went unrewarded. She sighed dramatically hoping her father would take notice. He did. What you got there? A postcard from Joan. Evelyn pressed her lips together as she waved it in his direction. "'She made it to the States all right?' "'Yes, sir.' "'She mailed this from New York before she boarded the train. "'I reckon she's made it to Chicago by now.' Her father pulled on the pipe, causing the tobacco to grow. "'Chicago, Illinois,' he said, as though he were talking about heaven itself. "'Daddy—' "'I know,' he said before she could say much else.' You aim to go. I do, Daddy, but your is going to be heartbroken, you know, even more than she already is, I know. Daddy pulled on the pipe again. What about Hank? I don't love Hank, Daddy. Evelyn struggled to keep her voice low enough that if Mama hovered near an open window upstairs, she wouldn't hear. Mama practically has my true soul laid out, but, Daddy, Hank's a good boy and all, but the rest was difficult to say. Hank Shute had been her boyfriend for all of their high school years, and he was a fine young man. Strong in his faith, strong in his body, which he had to be to work his daddy's farmland, which he intended to own himself one day. Hank was also strong in his love for her, and as plain and homely as Evelyn had grown up to be, she shouldn't look a gift horse in the mouth. Still, but he doesn't turn your skin to goose flesh? Evelyn giggled. What? Daddy laughed lightly. When the right one comes along, you'll feel your skin turn to goose flesh every time you get around him. Hank doesn't do that for you? Did you? When you and Mom were dating? Now he turned to look at her. Yes,'m, and I still do. Evelyn bit her bottom lip to keep from grinning. Then, Well, I haven't had those feelings yet. Not with Hank. Not with any boy. Her daddy raised the toes of his work boots, which set the chair to rocking as he faced forward again. What you think you want to do once you get to Chicago, Evie girl? Evelyn allowed her imagination to take flight. I want to get an apartment, not live in a boarding house. And I want to get a job in a big company. I want to get dressed up every day to go to work in one of those tall buildings downtown in the loop. The what? He peered at her. The loop. It's like the business area of Chicago. Evelyn drew an imagination, circle in the air. It's kind of round, so they call it the loop. Do you know where you'll live? Joni is taking care of that for me. At least, she hopes so. What about money? I've got some saved from my job at Mrs. Bryant's kitchen. Daddy remained silent for a moment. When do you figure on going? Evelyn raised an eyebrow. Soon? For a few moments more, they swung and rocked in silence. Tell you what, let's do, her father finally said. Give it a month. Daddy! The air in Evelyn's lungs rushed out and hung in the air between them like an old sheet on the line. Then you'll say it's too close to Thanksgiving and... But her father's eyes held firm, locking with hers as best they could in the dark night. Listen to me now. Yes, sir? One month. If you still feel like you want to go, I'll give you the money you'll need to get set up and put you on the train myself. He pointed the stem of his pipe in her direction. Not a word to your mama now. We don't need to go borrowing, no trouble. Evelyn's heart raced, but she managed to stay calm. Yes, sir. Then she smiled so wide her cheeks hurt, she hoped her father didn't see. I mean, no, sir. Chicago, Illinois. He said again, whispering the city's name like a prayer. You always were one step ahead of us here, Sugar Bear. I expect you'll do all right amongst those city people. Still, he turned the pipe upside down and knocked the tobacco into his calloused hand. If you ever want to come back, this is always home. One
1: more wedding story. Ours. A couple years ago, Shannon Van asked me to write about real-life romance for her Inkslinger blog. She called my post a not-so-traditional wedding. You'll understand why in a moment. For years after Steve and I married, my mother-in-law called our wedding the happening, which is a nice way to say the event was a bit unorthodox. Though we'd planned what we thought was a fairly traditional ceremony, variables occurred that kept the guests and the wedding party wondering what would happen next. Here are some of the highlights of our special day. The first surprise occurred early that morning when I realized one of the sleeves of my custom-made wedding gown had been sewn in backward. Thank God for a fearless sister-in-law-to-be who remedied, who remedied the situation just before I walked the aisle. And then there was the heat. I don't recall the temperature that sunny mid-July day. However... I do remember the church's air conditioning system chose that particular Saturday to break down. Needless to say, the wedding party and the guests were all toasty, especially the guys in tuxedos and the gals in long dresses with long sleeves. What was I thinking when I picked the patterns for our gowns? But my mother-in-law wasn't referring to any of the above when she talked about our wedding. She was picturing the three-year-old train bearer, her first grandchild, Excited to be carrying the choo-choo train, the happy little guy added appropriate sound effects as he marched behind me, to the delight of those who could see and hear him. The moment we reached the front of the church, he dropped the train and skipped back to the pews to sit with his grandparents, who had promised him a piece of gum after he fulfilled his mission for the day. She was also picturing the two three-year-old flower girls who sat on the platform steps plucking rose petals from their baskets and tossing them at each other. And she pictured the four-year-old ring bearer who shared the duty with his older brother and who took advantage of his proximity to his brother to stomp on his toes. Their father, the officiating pastor, tried unobtrusively to discipline his son, which, of course, did not work. So the mom, who had been sitting off to the side several rows back, bent low and crept to the front. But when she shook her finger at her youngest son, he shook his right back at her. Shortly after that entertaining moment, the oldest boy, the one who actually held the rings, got a nosebleed and had to be taken off the platform to lie on the pew next to his mother. God only knows where they found a handkerchief to sop up the blood, or who kept track of the rings. And then my sister, one of five bridesmaids, fainted but my father saw it coming and jumped onto the platform to catch her before she hit the floor. He laid her on a wide step near the busy little flower girls as my uncle ran for water. At that juncture in the ceremony, my roommate and a friend were singing a duet, but they didn't miss a beat. They just kept on singing. Later, a male soloist sang a Vogue's number, Woman Helping Man. In case you don't know the lyrics, the song starts out something like, A boy chases a girl until she catches him, but this is one thing he should never see. Though I doubt the song was written for a wedding ceremony, we enjoyed adding some humor to the event, as if it was needed. To top off the music, we featured a male quartet comprised of my almost-husband Steve and all the groomsmen, except my brother, who'd just returned from overseas military duty. One of the groomsmen, a college friend, sat down at the piano and attacked the keys with his inimitable honky-tonk-slash-Floyd Kramer style. The other guys gathered around and harmonized a rousing rendition of If That Isn't Love. The individuals who remained center stage during the quartet song included four bridesmaids with a gap where my sister once stood, me standing face-to-face with the pastor for the duration of the song sweat dripping down my face and neck under the veil, and my brother, who stood at the far side of the platform, as he was the last groomsman in the lineup. I'm not sure how many children were still with us by then, or what they were doing to amuse the guests. Finally, the song ended, the wedding party reassembled, and we finished our vows. Steve lifted the sauna veil. I gulped a breath of fresh air. He kissed me. And we began life's adventure together 41 years ago.
0: And it's been great ever since. And David Roper, who writes great blogs on his eMusings site, wrote about the importance of waiting in this one, which includes wise thoughts about marriage. The Waiting Place Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the land. Psalm 37, 8 and 9. Waiting is never easy, and haste is ever the sin of Adam, said Carlo Caretto. In the realm of extraneous factoids, I've read that if we live to be 70 years old, we will spend a minimum of three years waiting. Just waiting. Scientists have actually studied the phenomenon and discovered what we already know. We hate to wait. We twiddle our thumbs, shuffle our feet, stifle our yawns and fret inwardly in frustration. Haven't I borne this situation long enough? We ask. Isn't it time to move on? And still we wait. That's because waiting is an integral part of the process by which God is perfecting us. It's one of the ways by which God effects the ends on which he has set his heart. Without it, he could never make the most of us. Waiting is a time to develop humility patience, endurance, and persistence in well-doing. These quieter virtues, take the longest to learn, are the last to be learned, and it seems to me can only be learned through waiting, the very circumstance we're most inclined to resist. And so we must wait before we make any change, before we give notice to a difficult employer, before we walk out on a hard marriage, before we end a disappointing friendship, or make some other irrevocable decision. We must just wait. We'll know when it's time to make the next move. God will let us know. As someone has said, God is never in a hurry, but He is always on time. In the meantime, while we wait, we should look into each delay for its disciplines, learning its deeper lessons of faith and obedience, and yielding to God's efforts to change us rather than our circumstances. The extent to which we do so will determine the extent to which his purposes are achieved in us. F.B. Myers writes, What searching of the heart, what analyzing of motives, what uplifting of the soul, all these are associated with these weary days of waiting, which are nevertheless big with spiritual destiny. Here are a few more quotations for you. I can't speak for any other marriage, but the secret of our marriage is that we have absolutely nothing in common. That's from Mrs. Dwight D. Eisenhower. Another one from the White House, Lyndon Johnson. I have learned that only two things are necessary to keep one's wife happy. First, let her think she's having her own way. And second, let her have it. The best romance is inside marriage. The finest love stories come after the wedding, not before. That's by Irving Stone. That is what marriage really means. Helping one another to reach the full status of being persons, responsible and autonomous beings who do not run away from life. Paul Tournier or Tournier. A successful marriage requires falling in love many times always with the same person, Mignon McLaughlin. A successful marriage is not a gift. It's an achievement. That's Ann Landers. And last is by the genius Albert Einstein. Any man who can drive safely while kissing a pretty girl is simply not giving the kiss the attention it deserves. And with that, we'll go off air and we'll kiss. Have a great week.
2: Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckylyles.com. Tune in next week For more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You A Story.